I liked my life in my cabin in the woods. It, it's hard to say, but I, I might have liked it better than any life I'd ever lived before. The silence was beautiful, like a great ocean of whiteness in which I stretched and floated day after day. And at night I heard pine needles touching in the wind with a, with a brook behind them. Not bad, eh? All the same, after a while I got awfully tired of the food that you could buy in the local shops, and I got tired of my own cooking, too, I have to admit. There was a little town not, not too far away, but it only had one restaurant, Bill's. And to be absolutely frank, Bill's wasn't the greatest. So I decided to rent a small apartment in that new part of the city that was sprawling out towards the north, what, what we now call Pinville, a soulless little district, undeniably, but very, very quiet. Uh, there was an old woman who made vanilla pudding and sold it in a sort of barn-like space on the ground floor of the building. And people from all over the city started to come and to buy this vanilla pudding. And one day I was in the pudding shop and a beautiful woman came up to me and started speaking to me. She touched my arm. Oh, she had a lovely touch. And my whole body relaxed when she touched me. She'd been in my house. She'd seen pictures of me there. I walked outside with her. It was a greasy, sweaty, hazy day. <laughs> and we, we kept on walking out by the banks of the river until almost dark, sometimes talking, sometimes walking in silence. And so Robin and I became friends. <laughs> well, special friends. I felt something. I was happy, I guess, when I was with her. The way she said words seemed so charming to me, and she had no moods. Can you imagine that? She was always the same. Nothing disturbed her calm surface. No emotions at all, as far as I could tell. For the next several months, I went over to Rose's place on Apple Street almost every morning. I'd make some tuna fish salad for him. We'd eat, and then he and Blanche and I would race into the bedroom. Rose and I would take off our clothes, and then Rose and Blanche and I would crawl underneath the bright green sheets, and Rose would lead us through these ridiculous, hilarious games. <laughs> In the afternoons, Blanche would go out the window to the fire escape and disappear to God knows where, and Rose would take a very long nap. And then at night, I'd go home to Push Broom Lane, where Robin kept me well informed about her friendship with Cerise. Darling, I saw Cerise today. She gave me a present. Really? What was it? She gave me a beautiful picture. She did? That's amazing. What kind of a picture? 
It's a beautiful glass water pitcher. Huh. Things made of glass can be sort of bad presents in a way. Because when you break them, it seems like bad luck. Well, it's a beautiful pitcher. I'm certainly not going to break it. Why would you say no, such No, I a... just meant, why did she give you something you have to worry about? I'm not going to worry about it. And I... I'm not going to break it. Robin broke the pitcher at the end of the summer. By October, things were going seriously wrong. And I don't mean only that the leaves started dropping off of the trees. Blanche became restless, nervous, unpredictable. She started wandering away for days at a time, and then suddenly she'd reappear, and a few days later she'd go off again. Rose was unfortunately much less fun when Blanche wasn't around. At first I'd found it so charming that Rose had a child's haircut and dressed like a child and was always barefoot. But eventually, I began to notice that the only thing she really liked to do with me was to sit on her big white fluffy couch all day, fully dressed, and kiss. She was, in a way, like a dog who never gets tired of a particular game. But after so much kissing, I'd be almost desperate to be soothed inside her. And I noticed as the months passed that my visits to Apple Street became less and less frequent. The nights sitting next to him on Pushbroom Lane were cold and grim. We spoke very little and never touched. I was over 60, and as I sat next to Robin on those somewhat painful nights, I was thinking about all the things I would have liked to do, but realized now... I would probably never do. Then Cerise asked Robin to go away on a trip. Robin and I went off on a boat to a sunny island. We stayed in a big hotel. For most of every day, I'd lie on top of my bed in the semi-darkness of my room, half awake and sweating. But a few times, Robin and I went swimming in the nude. (laughs) There was something sexual about that somehow. God, I love that word. (laughs) Admittedly, I looked at her private area once or twice. It was small, rather formal. The pleasure I'd taken in the sun and warm weather began to return. I did ask Robin if she wanted to come live with me. But she didn't reply. Yes, I was happy. Is that so intolerable? You have a right to happiness, certainly. And I have a right to feel any way I like about you and to behave in any way I like as well. There was something thuggish in the way he said that. From then on, I was on my guard. After Robin and I came back from our trip, I used to go over to see her all the time. One day I dropped in unannounced, and it turned out she'd suddenly gone away on business. But he was there. 
We sat on two sofas looking across at each other. I took off my shoes and socks and grinned idiotically, staring him in the face. The next week I visited again. Sometimes we'd find ourselves kissing a bit, and uh, then a few weeks later we started to fuck. The fact was, it was true. I liked to have his dick inside of me. It gave me something to think about. Cerise talked constantly, obsessively about Robin. She was crazy about her. Relatively often, I meet Robin for lunch at some pleasant, sunny restaurant in the center of town. (laughs) We talked and laughed, and then I quietly stroll over to Push Broom Lane. Cerise and I were making love all the time, and sometimes she'd leave her panties lying around, occasionally posed provocatively near the toilet, for example. That began to get on Robin's nerves. One night, Robin found Cerise's red brassiere rather nastily flung across a bowl of red flowers. When she saw the brassiere, she shuddered violently, and the next morning she was unusually quiet as she went out the door. That night she didn't come back, and no one knew where she'd gone, it seemed. Cerise was extraordinarily upset. She wrote Robin a letter in care of her office and she gave the letter a title. Letter to a Bird. I only asked you, Robin, where you wanted to live. But flight, perhaps, was itself your answer. Is it always that way in the world of birds? Is that the bird's awful, silent response to everything? Flight? Then Robin called Cerise on the telephone. But why do you sound so terribly sad? What's wrong? It's as if you somehow think I was trying to hurt you. Yes. Yes, that's what I think. (laughs) My God, you've known nothing but love from me. Don't you realize that? Oh, come on, please. I know that's true, And yet, and yet, she says, and yet, and yet, I can't believe it. When I put down the phone, I felt a terrible pain in my stomach. Later in the day, I went out to do some shopping and I met three different people in different shops who told me that they were somehow feeling strangely unwell. And within a week, everyone in the city was using this whole new vocabulary. Food problems. Problems with food. Everyone felt cold. Everyone was shivering. Everyone suddenly seemed to agree that the water in the city, maybe even the air, could could make it all feel worse. So most people who could do so were fleeing to the country. After a week of terribly painful vomiting, I took off once more to my cabin in the woods.
For that whole freezing cold winter, I talked to almost no one except Dr. Gross. The strip clubs didn't open till four in the afternoon, so I'd wake up just in time to catch the first show at Spoon's, a nice little place near the antiquities market. I'd masturbate there and have some breakfast. But one day, one of the girls got horribly sick on stage. It was a rather lengthy, painful display, and so eventually I left, and when I stepped onto the street, I bumped right into Rose. It had probably been a year since I'd last seen her. I almost didn't recognize her. She looked so different. She looked more grown up. She was dressed in black and white with a purplish-dark lipstick. She took me home to Apple Street, and Blanche greeted us at the door. Rose and I tried to make love, but she very quickly had to run to the bathroom to vomit, and when she came back, we hugged each other for a long time. And from then on, almost every afternoon, I'd go over to Apple Street and Rose and I would sit next to each other in our pajamas in bed, reading magazines and taking turns vomiting in her rather cold bathroom. And Blanche would sit with us on the bed for hours at a time. Then one day Blanche went out, and she didn't come back. As more days passed and she didn't return, I lost control of myself. I screamed. I cried. Where is she? Where is she? I repeated crazily as I sat in bed compulsively painting dots on dark blue plates. I was sick anyway, so I couldn't stand the crying. I kept going out and running through the streets. Well, I never particularly liked Robin's husband, Mike, and he didn't like me. But one day I was out in the street, and I impulsively decided to throw myself on his mercy. So I went to see him, and after a brief discussion, he gave me Robin's address. She was staying in a rather chic apartment building in a rather chic neighborhood near Mandrill Avenue. When I rang her bell, it was hardly past sunset, so I was surprised to find her totally out of it as if she were incredibly drunk. But then I figured that she must have gotten hooked on one of those coyly-shaped, cutely-colored, very aggressive new painkillers that everyone seemed to be sucking on now. At first, she refused to let me in the door. Then she pulled me inside and gave me an enormous cocktail. But Robin, you know, to find my papers just strewn in the disorderly fashion across the desk. Well, there was something depressing about seeing that. Yes, I mean, they were my papers, the stupid book I was trying to write. And of course, you should have told me that you already had that blue sweater that I kept on looking for all over town for you. I suppose you got it from Mike, or you... And then the watercolors, the Paul Clay. Now that was bad. The Paul Clay. Well, you said you were going to buy it as a present for Ed. Yes, that's right. And the next day... When I asked you about it, you said you'd bought it. Yes. Yes. 
But the night of the party, it wasn't there. What the fuck? I don't know what I did with it. What the fuck? I lost it. I lost it. I just lost it. I don't believe you. I think you're lying. But please, I didn't come here to talk about that. I came here to talk about something else. Really? What? Oh, come on, Robin. No, really. Really. What? What? I'm talking about what you took from us. Stealing. Stealing. You know, Robin, against the law, a criminal activity. What are you saying? Is something missing? Or what in the world are you trying to say? I think you know what's missing, Robin. I do not. Where is the cat? Where is Blanche? What? You're not serious. Where? You think I have something to do with that? Where is she? I swear to God. At that precise moment, Blanche walked into the room and sat on the sofa. Then no one spoke for a long time. Finally, she said, All right, get out. Get out of my apartment. I'm taking Blanche. Oh, no, you're not. I lunged toward Blanche. Robin slapped me in the face. She grabbed me and pushed me. I stumbled and fell. And then she picked up a large knife from the kitchen counter, ran back to the sofa, and slashed at Blanche with incredible strokes, ripping her body with almost impossible speed. Blood flowed over the sofa. One of Blanche's paws fell onto the rug. I wrestled with Robin, but Blanche was dead. There was nothing I could do. Robin ran into the bathroom and locked the door. I banged on the door with all my strength, then ran outside, screaming. And I just kept on running. Just short of Apple Street, I stopped at a pharmacy and bought some sedatives. Then I trudged in a ghastly state to Rosa's apartment to tell her what had happened. It took her a very long time to grasp what I was saying. Then she became hysterical and then sick. She finally agreed to take some of the capsules, and then she passed quickly into a deep sleep. Long after midnight, I went outside for a walk, and the gloomy streets led me slowly to Pushbroom Lane. But when I came in the door and tried to turn on the lights, they wouldn't turn on. The bulbs had been smashed. Slowly in the darkness, I crept upstairs. I went into the bathroom, which was white with moonlight. Someone had pulverized the contents of the medicine chest, it seemed. My shoes were squelching through a thick cereal of pills, cough syrup, and broken glass. Then I heard a sort of moan, and I saw that Robin was lying on the bedroom floor. The curtains on all the windows were ripped, and there was a horrible smell. Urine dripped from the bed, from the blankets, the sheets. My God, what have you done? I, I tried to call you. No one answered. What's going on? I don't know. What's going on? Be careful with the sarcasm. I've still got the knife. 
she was curled into a corner of the dark bedroom, with the knife pressed against her throat. What's the matter? You seem frightened. What is it? What? Are you literally afraid to speak to me? I... You poor thing. Your life is awful. No, I... What a bully you are. It's like that day last year. That was an awful day. I missed you. I missed you. I left work. I hurried home. I came to see you. I walked in the door. I was full of hope. I mean, I simply walked in. I walked in the door. That's all I did. And the response from you was, What do you want from me? Oh, my God. I've learned. I've learned how brutal you are. Robin, please. No, this is awful. You seem unhappy. She reached out for me held me, and cried for a long time, caressing me sweetly as we lay on the floor, the knife beside us. I felt an impulse to get her out of my house. Do you want to go get something to eat, I asked? Yes, yes. So we walked down the street to the neighborhood cafe where so many years before we'd often found ourselves an early breakfast. But when we got to the cafe, we had a surprise. There was a sign in the window. The place was closed. Yes, our neighborhood cafe, always intelligently run, had come to a logical business decision which most other similar establishments ended up making just a month or two later. And when I look back on the two of us standing there, what's surprising is that the whole situation was so new at that time and so poorly understood that I didn't have the faintest idea that what was going on with Robin had nothing to do with those new painkillers. A few weeks later, the words unusual behavior would be constantly on the lips of every single person fortunate enough not to be behaving unusually themselves. And the phrase, unusual behavior followed by a short illness and death, would suddenly be a formula heard much more frequently than sun followed by clouds and late afternoon showers. Anyway... The night with Robin ended, I thought, in an unexpected way. We went back to the house, where she used both her hands in an out-of-it but still rather purposeful manner to remove my trousers and force my member inside her. And then she dressed quickly and asked me to watch her and even to help her as she went through different closets and found piles of old makeup, her own and Cerise's, which, despite my attempts to assist her, she applied with a definite awkwardness, as her coordination was obviously not quite what it should have been. In any event, there was no amount of makeup which could have prevented her face from conveying the message that she was both sick and insane. 
although she did manage to coax her skin into giving off a sort of metallic sheen, which was odd and fascinating and, in a way, alluring, one had to admit. And then she asked me to bring her over to Mike's, where, in fact, she remained for several weeks, until he and then she came to the typical end of life, which everyone now knew they would eventually reach, the moment when the vomiting didn't stop. He sat close to me on the long taxi ride to Mike's, and when Mike came out onto the very dark street in a bathrobe, he held Mike's arm for a moment before getting back into the taxi and speeding away. From Mike's place, I went back to Apple Street and I awakened Rose and took her for a visit to Dr. Gross. And then I called Cerise in the country and asked her to do a great favor for me. I asked her if she'd be willing to take in this sweet girlfriend of mine, because Gross felt quite certain that some time in the country would be all that would be needed to bring Rose back to a state of moderate health or at the very least, to save her life for a while. Cerise sounded tired, but she quickly agreed, and so Rose departed, and I soon learned from Cerise that it was going well. Cerise really liked Rose. She found her clever and funny, and they shared a feeling for all sorts of animals. Listening to Grasses of a Thousand Colors by Wallace Shawn. I'm Andre Gregory and I directed the production. The actors were Wallace Shawn as Ben, Julie Haggerty as Cerise, Jennifer Tilly as Robin, and Emily Cass McDonald as Rose. Bruce Odland was the composer, engineer, designer, editor, and podcast director. The mezzo-soprano was Hai Ting Jin. Mastering was by Mark Fuller. Many thanks to Rob Wiener, Paul Simon, the Royal Court Theatre, Dominic Cook, Oscar Eustace, and Jeffrey Horowitz. These podcasts were produced by Matt Rogers and Sean Williams of Gideon Productions.